Well, it gives me great joy to be here. My name is uh, Venkatesh Gopalakrishnan. I serve as the pastor of Anugraha Reform Presbyterian Church, which all of you have had a great role in planting. Um, I preached here six years ago in August 2016, and it uh, brings me great delight to be back in this pulpit. And uh, I see a lot of new faces, and the Lord has grown this church, and I praise God for that. I bring you greetings from uh, the church where I serve, Anugraha Reform Presbyterian Church. We remember, remember all of you in prayer, and we do pray for the wider church of Jesus Christ. And so I'm very glad to be here, and I trust that the Lord will bless his word onto the hearts of all of us. Before I get into the scripture reading, I would like to just say a few words about the context of this psalm. We are going to consider Psalm 63 today. And Psalm 63, if you look at the superscription in your Bibles, it says a psalm of David when he was in the wilderness of Judah. Now we know that David was in the wilderness of Judah a couple of times in his life. And uh, he was in the wilderness of Judah when he was fleeing from Saul. And he was in the wilderness of Judah when he was fleeing from his own son Absalom. So what is the context here? Well, the context can be either one. But it seems to me that the scriptures favor the latter option, that he was in the wilderness of Judah while he was fleeing from Absalom. Because many of the verbs which occur here in this passage in Psalm 63, they are found also in 2 Samuel 14, 15, and 16. And the other reason we would say that this is during the time when he was fleeing from Absalom is because in verse 11, if you look at verse 11, it says, it says, but the king shall rejoice in God. The king shall rejoice in God. And uh, David would not have said that if he were not yet installed as king. So all of these things favor the interpretation that David wrote the psalm when he was fleeing from his son Absalom. Now it really does not matter if you take the other interpretation as well. It doesn't affect the meaning of the psalm all that much but I'm going to be assuming the context that David was fleeing from Absalom. So with that said, please hear the reading of God's word. May I request all of you to please rise if you are able as we listen to the reading of God's holy word. A psalm of David when he was in the wilderness of Judah. O God, You are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. So I have looked upon you in the sanctuary, beholding your power and glory. Because your steadfast love is better than life, my lips will praise you. And so I will bless you as long as I live. In your name I will lift up my hands. My soul will be satisfied as with fat and rich food, and my mouth will praise you with joyful lips. 
When I remember you upon my bed and meditate on you in the watches of the night, for you have been my help, and in the shadow of your wings I will sing for joy. My soul clings to you, your right hand upholds me. But those who seek to destroy my life shall go down into the depths of the earth. They shall be given over to the power of the sword. They shall be a portion for jackals. But the king shall rejoice in God. All who swear by him shall exult, for the mouths of liars will be stopped. Here ends the reading of God's holy word, and may the Lord be pleased to write these words onto our hearts. Let us pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for the privilege of knowing that you have given us this word that you have not left us as orphans, but you have given us this word to lead us and guide us in this earthly pilgrimage of ours. We thank you that the Spirit of God illumines our minds to understand your word, and he leads us into the Lord Jesus Christ so that we may enjoy our union and communion with him. We pray, Father, that you would bless us. I pray that you would bless me as I preach. Lord, give me a holy ease of mind. Lord, I pray for your blessed people. I pray that you would give them attention, give them a distraction-free mind so that they may be able to give attention to your word. Bless all of us, O God, as we leave this hall. May we all know that we are your people and that you are our God, and may we greatly rejoice in that truth. Lord, comfort all of us who are afflicted and cause us to trust in you. We pray these things in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. You may be seated. <clears throat> when God led Israel to the promised land, he led them through a wilderness. Before the Lord Jesus Christ started his public ministry, God led him also through a wilderness. So God led both his sons, his son Israel, into the wilderness. And God led his beloved son, the Lord Jesus Christ, also into the wilderness before God allowed him to launch his public ministry. So there is a pattern here. God leads his sons through a wilderness. Now, beloved people of God, since you are sons and daughters of God in the Lord Jesus Christ, the same pattern will also follow in your life. God will lead you also through a wilderness. The path to the celestial city lies through the valley of the shadow of death. The road to heaven always goes through a wilderness. So all of us will be in a wilderness. I'm not talking about a literal wilderness, but definitely a spiritual wilderness. That is something which is granted to all of us because the Apostle Paul says in Philippians chapter 1, verse 29, for it is granted to you not only to believe on him, but what? Also to suffer for his sake. Now as we come to this portion of scriptures, beloved people of God, we find that David is in a wilderness. And he is in a literal wilderness in addition to being in a spiritual wilderness. Because his own son is baying for his father's blood. 
his own son has led him to flee Jerusalem. Absalom has staged a coup. And so David flees from Jerusalem for his own dear life. And as David is in the wilderness, he is cast down. He is feeling low in his soul. He is discouraged. But David, what he does is he finds his comfort. He finds comfort for his soul in God. He seeks after God. He longs for God. He longs for the public worship of God. And as he seeks God, God gives him comfort in the midst of a spiritual and a literal wilderness. And so, beloved people of God, there is a great lesson in this psalm for all of us. As I told you, all of us are going to be in a spiritual wilderness at one point of time or the other, and we can learn from David that only God can revive our souls. We can't look to our own selves. We can't look primarily to other people. You can't even look at your own pastor to give you deliverance. You have to look at God. You have to turn your face to the Lord Jesus Christ and ask him to revive your soul. And God, being very gracious and merciful, will answer your prayers and he will indeed revive your soul. And so the message which comes to us from this portion of scriptures, beloved people of God, is this. Find comfort for your soul in God when you are in a spiritual wilderness. Find comfort for your soul in God when you are in a spiritual wilderness. Now, it's easy to say find comfort for your soul in God when you are in a spiritual wilderness. It's very easy for me to say that, but how do you go about doing it? What do you do when you are in a spiritual wilderness? What are some practical steps that you need to take in order to find comfort for your soul in God? Well, that's what the psalm is going to teach us. The first way by which you find comfort for your soul in God is to make diligent use of the public worship of God. Make diligent use of the public worship of God when you are in a spiritual wilderness. And we derive this truth from verse 1 and verse 2. From verse 1 and verse 2 of Psalm 63. So let me read verse 1 here. Psalm 63, let me read out the superscription as well. It says, a psalm of David when he was in the wilderness of Judah. And he says, O God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. Now, as I told you, David is in the wilderness of Judah. The wilderness of Judah was a place in between the Jordan River and uh, the Dead Sea. And it was a very dry and an arid place. And the sun used to beat down at this place. And David must have fled Absalom during the summer months. And David did not have a lot of time to pack his supplies, did he? No, he had to flee in a hurry. And David may not have carried a lot of water and provisions with him. And so David finds himself all of a sudden in a wilderness, in this dry and in an arid land. And David is probably feeling thirsty. He's feeling physically thirsty for water because he does not have a lot of water. He has to share that limited water with all of his fellow uh, Israelites who are there with him in the wilderness. But David here says, Lord, my physical thirst is nothing. 
It is nothing compared to the spiritual thirst that I'm experiencing right now. My spiritual thirst is far greater than the physical thirst that I have. Why does David say that in verse 1? My soul faints for you. My flesh cries out for you. Why does he say that? Because he's away from Jerusalem. He's away from the public worship of God. He's away from the Ark of the Covenant. He's away from the sanctuary. He's not able to participate in the public worship of God. It is a little like David is, you know, experiencing COVID-19, the pandemic. You know, we all went through that, didn't we? It was a global phenomenon. But David's agony and the predicament in which David finds himself is far worse than what we found ourselves for two years. You know, at least uh, our family members were not baying for our blood. But here, David's own son is baying for his own uh, father's blood. And David is now away from Jerusalem, away from the public worship of God. And he says, Lord, my soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you as in a dry and weary land. Of course, I'm in the wilderness of Judah. But my soul really feels your absence more than the absence of all the provisions. And so what does David do in order to cope up with this situation? What does he do? Look at verse 2 of Psalm 63. In verse 2 he says, So I have looked upon you in the sanctuary, beholding your power and glory. Now David here is talking about the past. He's not talking about the present. He's talking about the past. You know, this was not the first time that David felt spiritually thirsty. It's not that when he was in the wilderness, it's only at that point of time he felt spiritually thirsty. David was a man who sought after God. And there were many, many times he felt spiritually thirsty, even when he was in Jerusalem. Now, when he was in Jerusalem and he was feeling spiritually thirsty, what he will do is he will go into the sanctuary of God. At that time, there was no temple. Solomon was going to build the temple. So David used to go to the sanctuary and there he will behold, he says, the power and glory of God. Now how did David behold the power and glory of God when he went into the sanctuary? He beheld the power and glory of God as he beheld all of the institutions and all of the things which were in the sanctuary. So he will behold the Ark of the Covenant. And as he beheld the Ark of the Covenant, he was reminded that even though God is the creator of the ends of the earth, even though God created the heavens and the earth, yet God is pleased to dwell among his people. That's what the Ark of the Covenant symbolized. It symbolized the presence of God in the midst of his people. So David was reminded as he looked at the Ark of the Covenant that God is in the midst of his people, that God has not forsaken his people, God has not left his people. No, God is with his people. And David also beheld the power and glory of God as he saw all of the sacrifices. All of the sacrifices as they were offered in the sanctuary, he was reminded of the attributes of God. He was reminded that God is a holy God. You can't walk into the presence of God casually. God is of course our friend, but we cannot treat him lightly. When you walk into the presence of holy God, you need to humble yourself. You need to come with a repentant attitude. That's what the sacrifices reminded him of. But David also understood that God is not only a holy God, but God is also a forgiving God. 
The Lord who is high and holy is also a God who is merciful, gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, forgiving iniquities, transgressions and sins. So as he beheld all of the sacrifices which were taking place in the temple, he understood the holiness of God and he also understood the forgiving nature of God. And so David beheld the power and glory of God. As he went into the sanctuary, as he went into the old covenant public worship of God, he beheld the power and glory of God. Now, beloved people of God, there's a great lesson in it for all of us, isn't it? There's a great lesson in it for all of us. You know, David here goes into the sanctuary. And he looks at all of the types and shadows which pointed forward to the Lord Jesus Christ. He did not see Jesus Christ face to face. He did not see Jesus Christ clearly. He looked at all of these types and shadows and yet he was able to behold the power and glory of God. And as he beheld the power and glory of God, that brought a lot of comfort to his soul. Right now, David is in the wilderness. And what he does is he simply recalls past worship. And as he recalls past worship, just that remembrance causes him to find comfort for his soul in God. Beloved people of God, we are not in a literal wilderness, are we? You know, we are not cut off from public worship of God. And we have greater understanding of the Lord Jesus Christ, don't we? We are not living in a, ta- in a time of types and shadows. We are living in a time when everything has been fulfilled. We are living in the time of substance. We have the substance. David, we can say, saw Jesus Christ as in a mirror dimly. Now, here I'm using the words of 1 Corinthians chapter 13. He saw the Lord Jesus Christ as in a mirror dimly, but we see the Lord Jesus Christ face to face, don't we? The Lord Jesus Christ is proclaimed to us in the preaching of God's word. I'm sure Pastor Foles and Pastor Ferris constantly proclaim to you through the preaching of God's word that Jesus Christ has died for your sins and that he has risen up again from the dead for your justification. That is a message which is trumpeted again and again from our pulpits. So the Lord Jesus Christ is set forth before you continually in this congregation. We have greater access to the Lord Jesus Christ, my beloved people. And not only is the Lord Jesus Christ proclaimed through the preaching of God's word, he's also proclaimed through the administration of the sacraments. We have the sacraments of the Lord's Supper and baptism. What do they signify? They signify that the Lord Jesus Christ is our substitute. He is the one who bore in his body all our sins and he is our substitute and he has washed thoroughly all your sins. And God is not going to look at your sin, but God is going to look at you as if you are as righteous as as the Lord Jesus Christ. This is what the sacraments also proclaim. The word and the sacraments, the preaching of God's word, the administration of the sacraments, and everything that happens in the new covenant public worship of God, they proclaim to us that Jesus Christ is our justification. He is our sanctification and he is our redemption. Jesus Christ is set forth before you very, very clearly, beloved people of God. And so, 
how much more do we need to make use of the public worship of God? If David could make use of the public worship of God when he was living in the old covenant times, how much more should we make diligent use of the public worship of God in these new covenant times when Jesus is set forth very clearly and find comfort for our soul in God? Beloved people of God, what I have noticed, you know, when people are in a spiritual wilderness, what they often do is they avoid coming to church. They say, I don't want to go to church because I'll feel miserable. And so they isolate themselves. They don't want to meet anyone. They don't want to fellowship with God's people. But that is like committing suicide. You know, if you have cancer, you shouldn't be avoiding chemotherapy. That doesn't make any sense, does it? If you have a fracture, you don't want to put a cast again. That is almost suicidal. It doesn't make any sense. So if you are in a spiritual wilderness, you should not isolate yourselves and you should not be away from the public worship of God, but rather you must come into the public worship of God even though you are feeling miserable. Even though you may say, I've heard that message you know, 100, 100 times. No, you must come into the public worship of God and God, through his preached word and through the sacraments, will fill you with all his fullness. You know, this is the clinic of the Lord Jesus Christ. If you have to go get treated from a doctor, you need to go to his clinic or you need to go to St. Vincent or you know, Methodist Hospital or whatever other hospital here it is. You can't just be sitting in your room and say, well, I'll get healed automatically. You know, we are not charismatics. But you need to take the step of going into the clinic of the Lord Jesus Christ. And this is the clinic of the Lord Jesus Christ and he will feed you with himself. The Lord Jesus Christ is given to you, beloved people of God. You know, when we come into the public worship of God, we are not going through some motions of religion. This is not empty ritual. We don't come here just to satisfy others and satisfy our own conscience. We come here to be fed. We come here because the Lord Jesus Christ loves you and he offers himself to you. Oh, taste and see what? That the Lord is good. That's what is happening here in the public worship of God. Jesus presents himself to you and he says, come, drink of me, come, eat of me. And he fills you with his fullness, beloved people. And so when you are going through a spiritual wilderness, don't cut yourself off from the public worship of God. Make diligent use of the public worship of God. Pray for your pastors that God would fill them with the spirit of God and that they would be able to proclaim the word of God clearly, articulately, and with passion. And so that you may be able to feel the presence of God. When you come into the public worship of God and you are participating in the sacraments, again, ask God to fill you. And may I suggest, beloved people, you know, hear, all of you hear two sermons, don't you? You know, don't take the sermons, the two sermons from one year and let it out from the other year. No. God is going to hold us accountable for every sermon that we hear. And so go back to your houses and I would say set apart one day in a week to meditate on the sermon. Meditate on both the sermons. You know, just like how we chew food with our mouths, we need to chew sermons with what? Our minds. And as we chew the sermons with our minds, we are going to get spiritual energy. Just like how food gives you physical energy, the sermons... The recalling of the public worship of God, it is going to give you spiritual energy. That's what David is doing here, isn't he? 
He's recalling the past worship of God, and that itself is enough for him to find comfort for his soul. So when you are in a spiritual wilderness, what should you do? Well, the first thing you need to do is to make diligent use of the public worship of God. The second way by which you find comfort for your soul in God when you are in a spiritual wilderness is to recall the steadfast love of God. To recall the steadfast love of God. Recall the steadfast love of God if you are in a spiritual wilderness. And we derive this truth from verse 3 to verse 8. From verse 3 to verse 8. And I will go through these verses rather quickly. Let me look at verse 3. David says, Because your steadfast love is better than life, my lips will praise you. Let me stop there for a minute. Because your steadfast love is better than life, my lips will praise you. You know, the word or the phrase steadfast love, those two words, it's a translation of the Hebrew word kesed. And kesed is a very rich word. You know, the translators, English translators, find it very difficult to translate this word. We translate it as faithfulness, love, mercy, loving kindness, and ESV translates it as steadfast love. It's a very rich word. It, you know, kind of brings together all of the attributes of God. But the major emphasis of this word kesed, or which is translated as steadfast love, is the committed love of God. God is constant in his love. God is committed in his love. He does not decrease in his love every day. You know, we might decrease in our love for our spouses. We might decrease in our love for our family members. One day it may be up, another day it may be done. With God, it's not like that. God loves you with a committed love, with a constant love. God is loyal to you. God is unwaveringly faithful to all of you. And that's what the word kesed signifies. That's why ESV, I think, correctly translates it as steadfast love. It's committed love. It's constant love. And here David says, Lord, your steadfast love is better than life. In other words, David is saying, Lord, the knowledge that you love me with a steadfast love, that you will never leave me, that you will never forsake me, that your love is not going to decrease or increase based on what I'm doing, that you are unwaveringly faithful to me, this knowledge is better than anything that life can offer to me. Lord, of course, I lived in a palatial mansion, and right now, I am in the wilderness. I am in not in Jerusalem, but I'm in the wilderness. I'm not experiencing prosperity, but I'm experiencing adversity. Even though I'm experiencing adversity, it doesn't really matter, Lord, because I know that you love me with a steadfast love. And that is better than life. Anything which life can offer, nothing is comparable to your steadfast love. And what David says here is very similar to what the Apostle Paul said in Philippians chapter 3, verse 7 and 8. You recall that verse? In Philippians 3, verses 7 and 8, the Apostle Paul said, But whatever gain I had, I count as loss. I count as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss for the surpassing worth of knowing Jesus Christ, my Lord. You know, the KJV puts it very well. I count everything as dung for the surpassing worth of knowing Jesus Christ, my Lord. Paul had a great Jewish pedigree. Paul had a lot of titles. Paul had a great heritage. He learned everything from Gamaliel, the best teacher in Israel that day. But Paul says, everything is dung compared to the surpassing knowledge of Jesus Christ, my Lord. And what David is saying here is very similar to what 
uh, Paul said in Philippians chapter 3, verses 7 and 8. And then, and so David says, Lord, because your steadfast love is better than life, I will continue to praise you. I will bless you. I will lift up my hands in your name. I am going to praise you even though I am in the wilderness. Whether I'm experiencing prosperity or whether I'm experiencing adversity, whether I'm in Jerusalem or whether I'm in the wilderness, I'm going to praise you because your steadfast love has captured my heart. David continues to meditate on the steadfast love of God in verses 5 to 8. He says, my soul will be satisfied with fat and rich food. You know, David was used to fine dining. David had the equivalent of steak and lobster every day. But here David does not have steak and lobster. David has a morsel of bread, I think, and David has a few dried figs. But he says, it doesn't really matter, Lord, because your steadfast love, the knowledge of your steadfast love satisfies me a lot. doesn't really matter what I have. And then he says in verse 6, when I remember you upon my bed and meditate on you in the watches of the night. Let me stop there. He says, Lord, I'm in the wilderness. And these people, Absalom and all his minions, they have taken away the privilege of public worship away from me. I'm not able to go into Jerusalem. I'm not able to go into the public worship of God. But it doesn't really matter, God, because they cannot take away the privilege of private worship away from me. And so even though I lie on this stony ground, even though I lay my head on this stony pillow, I'm going to be the man of Psalm 1. I'm going to meditate on you day and night, wherever I am. And I'm going to meditate on the character of God. And I'm going to meditate on the steadfast love of God. And then in verse 7, he says, For you have been my help. That's the content of David's meditation. He recalls how God has helped him in the past. You know, this was not the first time that David found himself in the wilderness. He found, him in, found himself in the wilderness when he was fleeing from Saul. And God helped him at that point of time. God did not allow Saul to take the life of David, but God made sure that David was protected. And God raised up David to be the king of Israel and God took Saul away from his life. So he knows that God has been my help and so he recalls how God has been my help in the past and he says, Lord, if you have been my help in the past, I'm very sure that you are going to be my help in the future as well. I'm not afraid of all that is happening to me right now. And then he says, and in the shadow of your wings I will sing for joy. You know, here David is picturing God as a mother bird. And just like how a mother bird protects her chicks under her wings, he says, God, you are my mother bird and I'm a chick. And I love to be under the shadow of your wings because I know you always protect me. You have protected me from the Philistines. You have protected me from Saul. You have protected me from all my enemies. And now again, you're going to protect me from Absalom. And then David brings his thought to a close. He says, my soul clings to you and your right hand upholds me. You know, that word cling is the same word which is used in Genesis chapter 2, verse 24. What does Genesis 2, 24 say? Man shall leave his father and mother and then what? He shall stick to his wife or be united to his wife or cling to his wife. That's the same word here. And David says, Lord, I want to cling to you. I have many wives. But my relationship with you is the most precious. And I remember Pastor Foles yesterday, he was telling uh, Aaron, 
you must seek your first love must be the Lord Jesus Christ and then comes normal you know that has to be the case with all of us and so J, uh, David here says Lord I cling to you I cling to you because you have sustained me you have upheld me and so beloved people of God what David is doing here is that he is recalling the steadfast love of God and as David recalls the steadfast love of God he is in a much better position to face the current dangers that he is facing because he is able to recall the steadfast love of God in the past he is able to endure the current trouble and the calamity that has come upon him and in his life and beloved people of God that's exactly what we must do we must recall the steadfast love of God you know a couple of years ago we had COVID we had this pandemic break out what did we do you know many of us went to the grocery stores and we started stocking up on things we started stocking up I hear on toilet rolls we started stocking up on groceries we started stocking up on essential commodities why because we wanted to be sure that we are you know safe and secure when we are facing a crisis isn't it that was the logic well that must be the logic even in your spiritual life you must talk up on the faithfulness of God you must talk up on the steadfast love of God you need to recall how God has delivered you in the past and as you talk up on the steadfast love of God when a crisis hits you and when you are going through a spiritual wilderness you are not going to be shaken because you know that God who helped you in the past is going to help you in the present and also in the future so recall the steadfast love of God beloved people one of the greatest ways in which God has shown his steadfast love to all of you is to bring you to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ isn't it all of us were jumping headlong into hell but the Lord Jesus sent his spirit and the spirit of God opened your heart he changed your heart from a heart of stone into a heart of flesh and he gave you faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and he united you to the Lord Jesus Christ that's the greatest way in which God has shown his steadfast love to you and so one practical way of stocking up on the steadfast love of God is to often recall your salvation and to thank God for it thank God for your salvation that God has made you a Christian when millions and millions of people billions of people are going to hell every day God has chosen you and God has given you the knowledge of his steadfast love thank God for that well the God has saved us not only in this way this is the greatest way in which he has saved us but God has saved us from a lot of other perils hasn't he all of us have experienced uh, lesser salvations if I may put it that way some of you have been delivered from great sickness some of you have been delivered from mental and spiritual agony and God has set your feet on the solid rock of the Lord Jesus Christ God has brought you out of say fear and anxiety and worry some of you have been de uh, delivered from dire financial straits and some of you almost lost your life but God has saved you he has spared your life and so beloved people of God as we recall all these ways in which God has shown his steadfast love we will not be shaken when we are experiencing a calamity in our lives when we are experiencing a spiritual wilderness in our lives and so what's the second way by which 
We find comfort for our soul in God, beloved people. We recall the steadfast love of God. Recall the steadfast love of God. And the third way by which we find comfort for our souls in God when we are in a spiritual wilderness is to hope for the deliverance of God. To hope for the deliverance of God. And we derive this truth from the last three verses. So let's look at the last three verses. And here, let me read out verse 9 and verse 10. David says, But those who seek to destroy my life shall go down into the depths of the earth. They shall be given over to the power of the sword. They shall be a portion for jackals. David is here saying, Lord, those who seek my life, they will lose their own lives. Those who seek me to slay uh, slay me with the sword... They themselves will be slain with the sword and in fact they will get no decent burial. In fact their bodies will be a portion for the jackals. It was not an honorable thing to not be buried. But David says that's what is going to happen to all my enemies. So David is here prophesying what is going to happen to all his enemies. You know what these people, Absalom and his minions, what they did not realize was that when they were rebelling against David, they were rebelling against God himself. David's kingdom was a picture of the kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ. What does, what does Jesus say in Matthew chapter 16, verse 18? I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against her. The world can do whatever they want. They can try to destroy the church, but that is not going to happen because God protects his church. And that is why I'm very confident that all of us will be protected and that the church both here in Indianapolis and in Bangalore, even though we are in a minority, will continue because God is the one who protects his church. And here, David's kingdom is a foreshadow of the church. And so David has that theology. He has the same theology as we do in this new covenant era. And David says, Lord, these guys can try to rebel against me as much as they want and they can try to overthrow me and my kingdom, but that's not going to happen. They are all going to perish. They are going to be given over to the jackals. Because you are the one who has set me as king. I did not become king because I called myself to be a king. You are the one who called me. You are the one who picked me out of my father's house. And you are the one who set me up. And so I know, Lord, you are going to protect me. The good work that you started in me, you will bring it to completion until the day of Jesus Christ. That's what David is saying here. And then in verse 11, he says, But the king shall rejoice in God. All who swear by him shall exult, for the mouths of the liars will be stopped. Here David is is expressing a great confidence that God is going to deliver him. That God is going to deliver him from all his enemies. David is saying, Lord, I know I'm going to come back to Jerusalem. I'm going to come back to the public worship of God. I'm going to once again behold the Ark of the Covenant. I'm going to once again behold all of the sacrifices. I'm going to behold your power and glory. And I'm going to be praising you in the midst of Jerusalem. And I'm going to be praising you along with all your people who have supported me in this crisis. And the mouths of all my adversaries, that is going to be forever silenced. Ahithophel is going to perish and all his minions are going to perish. But Lord, I am going to come back to Jerusalem. I am going to worship you once again. And so here David expresses a great hope in the deliverance of God. He expresses a great hope in the deliverance of God. And beloved people of God, there is a great lesson in it for all of us. When you are going through a spiritual wilderness, you must have hope 
in the deliverance of God. God is going to deliver you, no matter what you are going through. You know, your enemy may not be an Absalom. Perhaps an Absalom may not be coming and chasing you and he may not be baying for your blood. So our enemies are mostly spiritual in nature. We may be going through depression. We may be going through anxiety. We may be going through fear. We may be going through worry. We may be going through something which troubles our soul, which robs us of our joy and peace in the Lord Jesus Christ. You may find yourself in a spiritual wilderness, but you may need to understand that God is not going to make you to be tempted beyond what you can bear. He is going to put an end to that testing. He is going to put an end to that temptation. And he is going to set your feet on the solid rock of the Lord Jesus Christ. You know, in 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 10, Peter says, And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who called you into his eternal glory, will himself what? Restore, comfort, strengthen and establish you. God himself is going to restore, comfort, strengthen and establish you. But that's going to happen after a little while. After you have suffered. After you have gone through that spiritual wilderness which God wants to take you through so that you may be humbled. It's only after that God is going to restore you, comfort you, strengthen you and establish you. Now the trouble with most of us is that we want to get out of our spiritual wilderness without learning our lessons. God, I want to get out of this spiritual wilderness right now. You need to take my orders. I don't like being here. You need to get me out of this place immediately. I have greater wisdom than you. That's what we keep telling God, and God says no. You know, if you are desperate to get out of your spiritual wilderness, that's self-defeating. Because you drive yourself deeply into that spiritual wilderness, the more desperate you are. The other day when I was walking here, I saw a sign which said, don't read this sign. That's a self-defeating sign. Well, that's exactly how it is when we are desperate to get out of our spiritual wilderness. It's a self-defeating endeavor. Because the more desperate we are, we are going into the thicker woods because we are always fixated on deliverance from that spiritual wilderness. Now, I'm not saying you shouldn't pour out your heart to God. There are many Psalms which the Psalmists pour out their heart to God and they ask God to get me out of this place. But after you have poured out your heart to God, then you need to get busy seeking God's kingdom and his righteousness. At all points of time, God wants you to be fixated not on your own deliverance, but he wants you to be fixated with God's kingdom and his righteousness. God does not relax that rule at any time. It's not that when we are going through a spiritual wilderness, we can say, well, Matthew chapter 6 verse 33 does not apply to me. No, it applies to you. You always need to seek God's kingdom and his righteousness all the days of your life. You need to get busy serving others. You need to get busy participating in the life of the church. You need to get busy pouring out your life to others. And before long, you will realize that you're out of that spiritual wilderness. The man who refreshes others, what does the book of Proverbs say? He refreshes himself. You know, that's the great thing about self-forgetfulness. As you forget yourself, you are 
most useful to other people and you realize that you are out of your spiritual wilderness before you even realize it. And so what we need to be fixated with, brothers and sisters, is to seek the kingdom of God and his righteousness and before long, you will be out of your spiritual wilderness. And God will deliver you. God will deliver you. First Peter chapter 5, verse 10. Let me remind you again. And the God of all grace, who has called you into his eternal glory, will himself restore, comfort, strengthen, and establish you. So we have seen three ways, haven't we? To find comfort for our soul in God when we are in a wilderness. The first way is to make diligent use of the public worship of God. The second way is to recall the steadfast love of God. And the third way is to hope for the deliverance of God. Remember, dear people, that the Lord, even though he took Israel through the wilderness, he did eventually bring them where? Into the promised land. The Lord Jesus Christ, even though he went into the wilderness for 40 days and 40 nights, he eventually did complete the mission for which God sent him. And since you are sons and daughters of God, that's the same thing which will happen to you. God is going to deliver you. He is going to bring you out of that spiritual wilderness that you may be experiencing right now. And he will bring to completion what he has started in you. And this truth, beloved people of God, should bring you great comfort. So find comfort for your soul in God when you are in a spiritual wilderness. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are a God who brings us out of our spiritual wilderness. Lord, we cannot come out of that spiritual wilderness if we are desperate about it. But as we give ourselves to you, you bring us out of that wilderness, O God. Lord, I pray for your people here, your blessed people. Lord, I do not know their lives. You know their lives. Lord, I pray that they will seek you and your kingdom, that they will pour out their hearts to you, but then, Lord, they will get busy with serving others. And Lord, that you will bring them out of their spiritual wilderness. Lord, I pray that you would bless us all with the gift of self-forgetfulness. Help us, Lord, to be God-centered and others-focused and to, Lord, not think too much about ourselves. And, Lord, give comfort to our soul. We thank you for the precious words of these psalms. Lord, we pray that we would, Lord, always meditate on them. And, Lord, know that you will indeed restore comfort, strengthen, and establish us. To you be the glory. Bless your people, O God. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.